Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman and welcome to the last week of season four. Very aptly, our episode title is Tomorrow. My name's Jamila Rizvi and I'm joined by my co-host Astrid Edwards and we're here with you today thanks to the awesome people at Hachette Publishing who have been sponsoring season four and making it possible for us to come into your ears, come into your homes, come into your lives to talk about books twice a week for the last eight weeks. Astrid, we are recording from lockdown again (laughs) and it feels hard to think about tomorrow when the world is this uncertain. How do you think people in the future will write what we're living today? Ooh, that is a good question. I think that many of them will do it really badly. It's a kind of crappy time and I think there'll be a lot of bad fiction that comes out. But I also think that great literary movements happen when there are crises and we are living through a crisis. How do you think authors who write about the future more generally do it and do it well? What does it take to write something that is set in a time that hasn't happened yet and to for want of a better word, to pull it off, right? To make it feel convincing. So you know me well, Jamila, and it will be no surprise to you that my immediate thought goes to science fiction and speculative fiction because they are the genres that write about the future. They write about what may come. There are many, many bad novels written in the future, but the ones that work are the ones that that feel like they could occur tomorrow or maybe next year. They look and feel like our world, just a little bit of a different version of our world. You know, it's that what if. What if someone else won that really critical election? What if that really bad climate change prediction came true? What if this person made it and this person didn't? And so it's similar. It feels like we know it, but it then lets us explore through the very safe medium of fiction, what may come. And, you know, a famous example would be Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale or George Orwell's 1984. Both authors were writing in a future, in an imagined future, but it felt like it could happen. I think that's true. It's that idea of kind of threads of truth, right? Even though you're writing something that isn't real and will never be real and when it comes to speculative fiction and science fiction and fantasy, you're not writing a a future that you think will happen. It's not a prediction, but you're taking through into your story these threads of truth in order to write something that has truth at its core, that kind of has truth grounding the plot or the thesis. And as you say, in the case of The Handmaid's Tale, these sort of lessons about the possibility of women's rights that have been so hard won going backwards, which, as you say, we've seen in some parts of the world over the last decade in particular. And then in Orwell's 1984, the idea of increasing government control and the loss of factual bases for how decisions are made and a populace being distanced from its decision makers. And being watched by devices. Technology is here, people. 
And I've got to say, I think of 1984 every time I install a new app and it comes up with that question saying, do I want to share all my data and let it do everything at once? And I'm like, no, no, no. Yeah, I do the same thing. Every time I get prompted, I'm like, do I want location services on? Are you listening to me? I can't tell. Did you know, Jam? I have now started talking to my phone because somehow what it is advertising to me on the apps I use, I really, really want. And then it's weird when I get something that's so obviously not me and the algorithm didn't work. And I have now been known to say, hey, iPhone, totally wrong. I hate that. And I'm really scared that I now engage with my phone because I am 100% sure it is listening to me. Let me share a terrifying moment from the last lockdown with you. I let my little boy on FaceTime talk to one of his best friends every afternoon. And so I gave him my phone and said, okay, you can call Max. And he jumped on the phone to Max and they were having a chat. So I left them to it. And I went into the other room to do some cooking. And when I came back, Max must have had to cut the conversation short. And my son was just sitting there talking to Siri as if he was having a conversation (laughs) over quite a long period of time. And I was like, no, wrong, wrong. That makes me feel awkward and sad. I am really sorry that happened. Well, let's brighten things up with some extraordinary reads. This week, we are going to be talking about Kazuo Ishiguro's Clara and the Sun and Stan Grant's The Falling of the Husk. So let's get started. Astrid, Kazuo Ishiguro is no stranger to those who love books. And I imagine you have read a bunch of his work in the past. Oh, I have. The Remains of the Day, the book, but also that movie with Emma Thompson and Anthony Hopkins is such a beautiful story. It's regarded as one of the most perfectly written and crafted pieces of fiction ever. And it was written almost three decades ago now. I was also an incredible fan of Never Let Me Go, which is a beautiful novel. And Ishiguro's newest work, Clara and the Sun, I think is most closely aligned with that book. So let me introduce you to it. Clara is artificial intelligence and she is an AF, an artificial friend. She is an android that is bought by mums and dads to be a buddy for their teenage children. So she's like a better version of Siri? (laughs) Exactly. She's a better version of Siri, a much more advanced version of Siri. And as the novel plays out, you learn more about the very polluted and anxious America that Clara and the other characters in the novel are occupying. And that is the reason that teenage children are mostly having to be homeschooled by teachers who are on the screen rather than interacting in person. I wonder if that sounds familiar. So Clara is solar powered and she is sitting in a department store where she has been spending her days being moved from one place to the other in the shop floor trying to sell her. And then one day, a young woman called Josie and her mum walk past and they decide to purchase Clara, despite the fact that Clara is actually not the latest model. Clara is basically like the iPhone 10 when the iPhone 11 is about to be released next week. So she's suddenly not what people are going to buy, but Clara decides to purchase her anyway. And that's where our story begins. So in our world that we exist in now, we don't have that kind of artificial intelligence, or maybe we do, but it is certainly not mass produced and available to buy in the local department store or have delivered. So this is set in the future, but a very near future that kind of feels like it's just around the corner. 
That's right. It's uncomfortably close is how it feels and the language and the manner of how the characters interact and the way they dress and the way they talk to each other suggests that this is an imagined future not too far away from our own. And there's some beautiful pieces of imagination that kind of bring this new future to life. There is talk, for example, of people losing their jobs to automation, but the government and the community now call it being substituted. So there's this sort of use of language to cover up the reality of people losing their ability to earn an income. Houses and households are described as high rank, which to me gave me moments of sort of handmaid's tale kind of feels to it. And there's even a section where rich children are described as being lifted, which means they are optimised for success. They are given opportunities that other children don't get. They are lifted. And those particular examples of this imagined future world did feel weird and uncomfortable in how close the possibility of them being true might be. And that's the beauty and the awkwardness of speculative fiction, right? Like it's so close to home, but it makes us, it pushes us to think and to ponder in different areas. I haven't read this book because it is really new, isn't it? It just came out this year? Yeah, only I think about two months ago, maybe even less, because I know I had the advanced copy. So it is stunning, particularly in the style of writing. Actually, I grabbed a quote from Radhika Jones from the New York Times describing the style of writing, which I think is really on point. She says, with Clara and the son, I began to see how he, the author, has mastered the adjacent theme of obsolescence. What is it like to inhabit a world whose mores and ideas have passed you by? What happens to the people who must be cast aside in order for others to move forward? And I think she really captures the essence of this book because the book is about progress and even the idea of progress being overtaken. So we see robots and AI as progress, right? But Clara herself is being overtaken already because she becomes yesterday's news as soon as a newer, better version of her is invented, a version that people are perhaps more excited to be connected to and to have something to do with. As you were just talking then, Jam, it made me think of all the other ways we see technology creating what some people would call obsolescence, which I prefer to think of as an opportunity. But for example, think of coal, and people who work in the coal industry, it's not good for us all for coal to continue. We need clean tech and renewable energy. But, you know, the political line is still, we must save coal jobs. When can't we retrain and prevent obsolescence, but rather create something new? Is that the kind of thing, like those contemporary debates that we see, is that the kind of thing that Clara and the Sun forces us to think about? Yes, I think so. And one of the things that Radhika Jones does for the New York Times when she reviews it is she suggests that this is an ongoing theme in Ishiguro's work. And when she said that, I kind of went, no, 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 his books are so different. I don't think that's right. And then I I went through them and <laughs> sort of did a mental checklist, at least of the ones that I'm familiar with. And there is some truth to that. So if you take The Remains of the Day, your favourite of Ishiguro's work and that won the Booker Prize, it is all about the work and service of a butler and he works for a person called Lord Darlington and by the end of the book, outrageous spoiler coming folks, he kind of comes to this understanding that he has given a life of work and a life of service to someone who is not a good person 
And again, there's a sense of obsolescence to that, right? A sense of having given your labor without purpose or without the right purpose. In Never Let Me Go, which is a story about clones, basically, the clones, speaking in slightly satirically here, they complete after fulfilling their biological purpose. So the clones end after they've done their job and when they also become obsolete. And so I think there are some crossover there and I think it's a really fair point. I wanted, Astrid, if it's okay with you, to talk a little bit about Clara as a character because I found the idea of a computer program essentially as a character, as someone you came to feel something towards or about really fascinating. Oh, I love you, Jam. This happens a lot in sci-fi. And so I have to admit, I read several novels where the AI is the main character. And yes, now you are laughing at me, but you know, this is a thing in the genre. And I'm so glad that you have finally, finally found out about it. Well, I'm actually laughing at me because I thought this was completely novel and original and clearly it's not. But Clara is our central character. I kind of like her, but I'm supposed to like her because she was constructed and programmed for me to like her. (laughs) One of the things that's hard to do, though, is kind of feel affection for her or feel a sense of crossover in our feelings because she doesn't have any. And I think Ishiguro does such a beautiful job of giving her this somewhat staccato-like voice, which feels almost like she's pretending. It's like there's a flatness to her conversation and the way she interacts with others. And she is machine-like to the end. There's no point in the book where you kind of start to see a human side to Clara. She's clearly not. And while she's technologically very capable, there are some limits to her ability to be human-like. And I grabbed this one passage, which I thought was interesting. This is Clara speaking. She says, then he looked away and closed his eyes, letting his cheek rest against the top of her head. They stayed like that for a time, keeping very still, not even rocking slowly, the way the mother and Josie did sometimes during their morning farewells. So you can sort of see from that It's almost like she's observing human emotion and empathy. She's looking at it from the outside, like a scientist conducting a study of something that they're not part of. So you're saying that Ishiguro is asking the reader to think about what makes us human. Is that too long a bow to draw? I think that's part of the book. I think it's about humanity. Yes, I think it has to be when we're dealing with AI. I think Ishiguro is also trying to say something about purpose and how work provides us with purpose and how love and interaction provide us with purpose. And when our work and our labor can be substituted by a machine and where potentially our love and interaction can be substituted by a machine, what does that say about us? Okay, so today our theme is tomorrow and I have taken a little bit of a different tack. I have gone with nonfiction and recently I have been reading a few works by Stan Grant. Have you read any of Grant's work? Yes, I have. I've read Talking to My Country and of course I'm familiar with Stan Grant from watching him on television panels and hearing him on radio. So I have also read Talking to My Country, but today I want to talk about 
two of his other works, both of which had been released in 2021. The first is Stan Grant on Thomas Keneally, which is part of the Writers on Writers series from the State Library of Victoria and Melbourne Uni. And the second is With the Falling of the Husk, A Chronicle of the World in Crisis, which is a new nonfiction work looking at the state of our world and what may very well happen. And the reason why I kind of want to talk about both is in all of Grant's writing, he refuses to let us think about the future and making things all better or what may come without acknowledging the past and how the past impacts today and tomorrow. What has happened has got us here and will continue to influence where we go. I'm going to guess you haven't read either. No, I haven't. So this is a podcast where we talk to readers about books and Stan Grant on Thomas Keneally, this is the kind of thing I want to read. This is a writer, a guy who is good with words, talking about the work of another guy who is good with words. And that doesn't happen as much as I would like in Australia. And in this particular case, Grant talks about Thomas Keneally's most famous work, The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, which was published all the way back before you and I were born in 1972. Now, why am I bringing this up in an episode about tomorrow? Well, in this novel that Keneally wrote, he actually tells the very real story of Jimmy Governor, a Wiradjuri man who was proclaimed an outlaw after committing a series of murders and then trialled and executed. Keneally took the voice and the story of an Indigenous man and then became a famous movie and Grant writes about who gets to tell the stories of our past, but he goes further and he actually not only questions whether Keneally should ever have written it, but he argues that Keneally and most writers writing today, including other Indigenous writers that we have talked about and interviewed on Anonymous Was a Woman Jam, are actually stuck in whiteness and will never be able to understand our present or figure out where they're going tomorrow if they don't come to a different understanding of their own past and our own shared past. And that's really struck with me. I'm not sure if I'm articulating this very well, but it's a really powerful message that I think I'm going to have to go back and reread. So do you remember we have interviewed Tara June Winch? Yeah, I do. And I'm trying to understand, does Stan Grant kind of criticise contemporary First Nations authors? Criticise is the wrong word, but he does engage with how they are writing. And he specifically talks about Tara June Winch Both of them are of the Wiradjuri Nation and Grant is very clear that they probably are linked very distantly by blood at some point. And he's saying, and I'm quoting here, trapped in a conversation with whiteness is the way that Grant talks about contemporary Indigenous writers. And I feel incredibly unqualified to make a comment on this, but I love all of these authors and reading this is forcing me now how I negotiate what I've been reading and understanding. And this is the power of criticism, right? This is the power of writers engaging with other writers. We don't just take a story and think it's great and love it and recommend others read it. There are so many different levels of meaning and understanding and analysis. And I just wanted to draw everybody's attention to it because his point is very clear. We can't go forward unless we understand our past and As a nation, we have so much baggage to unpack. All right. So Stan Grant talks about Tara June Winch. Who are the other authors that he delves into their work and maybe says bad things? He talks about Kim Scott, who, of course, won the Miles Franklin and Bruce Pascoe. And then he goes beyond Indigenous writers and also talks about Christos Chalkis. And Christos has always written as 
a second generation migrant and not as a white Australian as such, but it is, it has given me a lot of food for thought and I feel like I need to go and now find all of the interactions and engagement and criticism of this work just written by Stan Grant so I can understand where this sits and maybe rethink or reevaluate a lot of my responses to works or not. Do you see what I mean? Like, I don't feel like I have an answer, but I really get flummoxed and I'm really flummoxed now. And I think that's a good thing because engaging with different views is so essential. Sounds like Stan Grant has given you a new perspective and a new question to explore in your reading of any work, but particularly work by Indigenous authors. And it's not necessarily that you're going to come down on the side of his perspective or answer the question in the affirmative, but you want to go and ask it yourself. Absolutely. And it's not my question to answer, but it is very much a question that I think all readers should engage with. And having read that published this year, I also then immediately went and picked up his latest book, The Falling of the Husk. Now, this is the kind of nonfiction that I love. Grant is, of course, a journalist. He has been working with stories and reporting on stories for decades in Australia and around the world. And this is a book of big ideas. This is a book engaging with how history has got us to this point of the potential rise and fall of empires in our lifetime, specifically China, the arc of history and that idea that it bends towards justice, but, you know, maybe sometimes it doesn't. And the idea that's been swirling around in Western thought for a while, the end of history and the fact that it all went well for us and now clearly it hasn't. And everything that he is talking about, about what might come this year, next year, 10 years time, our tomorrow, our very near tomorrow in our lifetimes and in the lifetimes of our children, it's all shaped by what happened yesterday. And it's all shaped by the weight of history and maybe the lessons that we haven't quite yet learned. That sounds fascinating, but also incredibly broad. Does Grant take a lens to a particular element of where the world is progressing towards? Like, is there a focus to the writing or is it a broader question? It's a broader question, but it's very much based on his specific experience. So China is kind of the big question and how the world, and I mean the world, but also how Australia and individuals engage with China. And Grant, of course, spent many years living in, raising a family in and reporting from China. So he is speaking from that type of personal experience, but he goes into other big ideas and big challenges as well. There is technology, there is climate change, there is America, the idea of inequality and revolution and change and climate change. Like this is high level nonfiction. This is not, and here's our list of solutions that we get to at the end. This is the world's a big place and here's some really big ideas that we all need to think about. Wow. What incredible skill from a writing perspective to be able to draw all of those issues together into one book with, as you say, it not being just a list of possible or uh, supposed solutions. That must take some serious writing chops. He is a good writer. There's a lot of emotion in here as well. We know that Grant is writing this. It's not some kind of distant academic text with a omniscient narrator that has no opinion. Grant is angry and he's angry about what has happened previously and how we've got to this point and what might happen tomorrow, right? This is again, the weight of history. We didn't just wake up one day here. We got ourselves here. And the question is what we do about it and how we think about it. And this is not a book without positivity and hope. 
there are many, many good futures that we could get to, but we have to do the thinking so we can get to the good ones. Now it's time for recommendations. And Astrid, I want to tell our audience about Sand Talk by Tyson Junkerporter. This is the most pleasurable read and there are moments where it is intensely practical and there are moments where it's the opposite, where we are sitting in the ether and we are asking big questions and looking out into an ocean of what is possible for humanity. It's also a deeply compassionate book, which I really enjoyed. So at its core, this is a book of stories about Indigenous knowledge and the way Indigenous people think about knowledge, which I think is critical. And the way that Junker Porter speaks about that approach is that it is long-term thinking. Contrary to so many of our, our perhaps current governments and Western styles of thinking, the focus is very much on learning from the past, looking back and looking at what has happened, looking for patterns, looking for connections, looking for commonalities and saying, well, what can we take from that and bring with us into the future? I am butchering Junker Porter's point, but this book is academic, it is artistic and it is so well told because in the end, it's a bunch of yarns. That's how it's described by Junker Porter. So it is readable. It is relatable. You meet people that he has met through his travels and slowly but surely you start to have some understanding, or particularly me as a non-Indigenous person, I started to have some minutiae of understanding of First Nations knowledge and how the very thinking can be different, not even the stuff that gets thought. I have read this book and... Did I just describe it terribly? (laughs) Yes, you did, but I also don't think that I would have done any better job. I teach at RMIT University and Yuka Porter has come and given a lecture to my students and I have never, ever seen, either as a student or as a lecturer, someone stun a group of adults before as Yunker Porter did. They were shell-shocked. And it is the most beautiful thing when a writer and a storyteller can be so different and ask people to think in a different way. Your turn. So I've chosen today, Jam, not to give a specific recommendation of a book, but instead a specific recommendation on how maybe we can all as individuals approach tomorrow. So if you are a person who reads a lot of fiction, I want to ask you to pick up a nonfiction book. And if you are a person who reads a lot of nonfiction, I want to ask you to pick up fiction because tomorrow is going to be pretty shitty, let's face it, if we don't all do things a little bit differently. What a recommendation to end the episode. Thank you for spending your time with us today, everyone. We will be back on Thursday with Dr. Norman Swan, who has become quite the celebrity as the ABC's chief medical reporter. He has written a book and he'll be in conversation with Astrid and Sally Spicer 
So please make sure you don't miss that. The best way not to miss it is to subscribe to Anonymous Was A Woman, which you can do wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a rating and review. Tell the world how good we are and make sure that you come back for Dr. Norman Swan on Thursday and then season five, which is just around the corner. Thank you so much to Hachette Publishing. Thank you to Bad Producer Productions and to Future Women, without whom this episode of Anonymous Was a Woman and indeed this season of Anonymous Was a Woman would not have been possible. 